Hello, listeners. I'm Aaliyah with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Amjo Hall, is joined by Bill Sandu, a human rights and criminal justice lawyer who served 10 years as a BC provincial court judge. Bill tells the story of a remarkable family journey and how a trip to Pakistan brought generations of his family back together. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again uh, this week. Really delighted to have a special guest uh, with us, uh, Bill Sandhu. Welcome. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yeah. Wondering if we can um, start with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit. Uh, I'm Bill Sandhu, uh, born in Westminster, uh, raised in Williams Lake. I'm a lawyer. I served 10 years in the judiciary of the Provincial Court of British Columbia, and I currently practice criminal law and human rights, uh, including international human rights law. And I speak Punjabi, but can't read and write it. And I can speak a functional French when necessary. (laughs) Uh, Bill, you recently went to Pakistan, and we'll talk a little bit later in the interview about your your reasons for going and all of that, because it's quite a remarkable family story that led you there. Of course, I grew up in uh, Williams Lake in the same town that you were raised in, and we have a, a connection with our families because uh, my parents were renting um, at your parents' place, and I think that's where I was born, in fact. Uh, I was born in the hospital, but uh, in my years before my memories begin, I was there as as well. So wondering um, if you could talk just uh, a little bit about the story of your mother, which is absolutely fascinating. It's been uh, you know written about in the Globe and Mail, and you've done some interviews with CBC Radio. But wondering if you can sort of share that that part of growing up and your own family story. Yeah, so uh, it's been a long journey, a very uh, personal and powerful journey of discovery. But for most years of my life, living in Williams Lake, being raised there, I have a younger sister, one sibling. She's six years younger than me. Basically, you know, you're living your life. And um, But what I knew is that my father immigrated to Canada in 1950, and shortly thereafter, my mom joined him. My father's a Sikh. My mother, as we now know, was born into a Muslim family. But for all of her, uh, basically her life, and as we knew it, she identified as a Sikh, and she practiced Sikhism and quite devoted in many respects. I think that, and I can elaborate on that later if need be. Um, My parents were what they call quota Indians. At that time, Canada only allowed 150 persons per year from each of India, Pakistan, and then what was known as Ceylon as fellow members of the British Empire. But it was very much still a very sort of racist and colonial kind of immigration policy. They settled in the Fraser Valley, working with my aunt, my father's sister, helping her for about seven years without any recompense. But when I was about to be born, and I was born in 1958, my father began searching for work and he traveled up through various small towns until he ended up in Williams Lake. He basically camped outdoors along the railroad tracks for three days and got a job in what used to be called GIPS, small mobile lumber operations. 
so he was the first South Asian to permanently settle in the Central Caribou in the Williams Lake area. So we were raised there. Um, neither of my parents were formally educated. In retrospect, they were quite happy years because my father was working in the mill. He was productive. He thought he was building a life for his family. And when I was 10 years old, as we often hear, all too common, my father had an accident uh, outside our home. He slipped down some icy stairs, fractured his skull, blood clot, very late diagnosis in the hospital, really no advocacy uh, on the part of my family. We just were bewildered. I was 10 years old. My sister was four. And my father suffered a very serious brain injury. He was incapacitated probably had the functioning of a, of a four or five-year-old, if that. We took care of him at home for 10 years without any disability plan. Um, my mom uh, was the first South Asian woman there, Punjabi, basically Punjabi community, to work outside the home because she had to take up work then. She worked in a hotel laundry, then as a dishwasher, and then as a cook to support our family. When she worked the night shift, she would prepare the food. I'd come home from school, warm up the food, feed my dad, help my sister to bed, my dad to bed. I was a good student. I had a remarkable school principal, a woman named Hazel Huckfield. She took a deep interest in me and really was instrumental in the successes of many of the, of the Punjabi children in that town that have gone on to do very well. Like even on the street that you've referred to, I think there's eight or nine homes out of maybe 15, all success stories, all Punjabi children. Anyways, um, as the years went on, one began to wonder, I certainly, as a child, you don't really think about this, but how come I hear about my father's side of the family? Now, at this stage growing up, basically, from my knowledge, my grandparents from both sides were deceased, so I had no grandparents. And, um, you know, I heard about my father's village, his family life, his family, his siblings, and so forth, but I never really heard about my mom. And that's uh, now in hindsight quite understandable because, you know, uh, survivors of trauma, you know, I'll come to the story later why, often bury their trauma in silence. There have been books written about silence, and she never talked about it. But as I went into adult years, well into adult years, you begin to wonder. And I think what was instrumental was in 1988, I had been practicing law for two and a half years in Williams Lake. I had my own law practice and I shut it down and went backpacking for a year through Asia and Europe, three months in India. Now, at that time, there were still a lot of difficulties in Punjab, but I visited for about 10 days. This was during Operation Black Thunder. But I ended up going to my ancestral village. We no longer have any home. My father has no surviving siblings. But I stayed in an adjoining village. And a fellow said to me, he spoke about my mom. And he said, you know, I remember your mom. You know, and in the course of the conversation, he said, he mentioned her village's name, a village named Chakkar. He said, I said, oh, really? Uh, he said, would you like to go there? I said, no. I mean, I didn't want to spend too long in Punjab because it was quite a lot of civil strife, uh, uh, government, military occupation. So I left. But at the end of that year, when I came home, my sister and I sat my mom down and said, you have to tell us what happened. Uh, she started crying. She said, you know, I don't want to share it with you. I don't want you to bear the burdens that I've had to. And, and I don't want you to feel that pain. I want you to look forward. That's always been my objective, to, to live a, a look forward and educate my children so that you have a better life than I've had. 
But she did say some things. We put some pieces together, but it wasn't complete. Now, the other thing in hindsight is that my mom, when the 1947 partition happened, she was in her teen years. So in part, she buried it in trauma. In part, maybe she didn't want to reveal things because they were too painful or awkward, or she may not even have remembered some things well with the passage of time. Because by 1988, now we can do the math, it's already 41 years after the the partition. Then years pass, every now and then it'd come up in a family conversation, but nothing much was said. I should go back and say that about age 14, I remember coming home from school one day and I saw my mom crying. And I asked her, why you're crying? And she didn't say much. She just said, they killed my brother. They came to our house and they killed my brother. And she said, there were horrible things done to people, the the way they were murdered and this kind of thing. So that kind of planted a seed in my mind, you know, where's this going? What, What really happened in my mom's life? But she wouldn't reveal it. And we didn't really ask much until well into our adult years. But of course, I started to do research and read about the partition. Part of that is the journey of being, as you may understand, being born in Canada and really learning about Indian civilization, the subcontinent, the history, the culture, and so forth. And that included learning about the partition and delving deeper into what happened there and reading. So that informed my knowledge. And then in 2012, my wife, and now, of course, I have uh, by then a daughter and a son, and we went to India and we went with my wife's uncle. We just got in a vehicle and went to my mom's ancestral village. And in the Punjabi villages, a lot of old men often sit around the central square or a tree and they talk. And so we started to ask questions. By that time, we knew my uh, maternal grandfather's name and my maternal grandmother's name. But we didn't want to reveal much because we don't know if people are going to reveal the truth or what's the situation. But in the course of it, you know, one person connected us to another, to another. And somebody mentioned my, my maternal grandfather's name. And we said, we'd like to know more. And they said, there's a fellow here. You should go see him. We, he was very frail, probably didn't live long after that. They carried him out and he talked to us and he started to cry. He said he was with the constabulary, that he uh, he arrived too late. And what he thought was that my grandfather and surviving members of the family had been murdered right there as they tried to escape on a bridge. Now, I've gone a bit ahead, but basically uh, the story of the partition is that it's the largest migration in human history, 14 to 15 million people fleeing their homes, basically just carrying whatever they can. There was mass violence. The partition was divided along, uh, instigated by religious differences and politics, Pakistan was to be a country for Muslims, India, a more secular state, but Hindus and Sikhs had to flee what's today Pakistan from Punjab. Punjab was partitioned in half. People that had lived together for millennia, shared culture, shared history, family stories, family connections. And uh, Muslims had to then move, migrate to Pakistan. One to two million estimated dead. But we didn't really gather uh, much of a picture in 2012, came home, talked to my mom again. She told a little bit, but still too many pieces missing. But as often happens, sometimes the third generation can get through to a grandparent. And our daughter spoke to her grandmother and said, you know, grandma, you need to tell your story. You're getting old now. You're getting frail. You're going to pass. You need to tell your story. Now, my mother was reluctant. 
Again, the same old thing. Why do I need to tell my story? I'm afraid to tell it. I don't want to share my pain with you. What will people say? Because some people still want to fight the old battles based on religion and so forth. Um, But our daughter was able to persuade her grandma to do the interview. And so in August of 2018, my mother was interviewed in Vancouver by Dr. Vinder Daubery. My family had traveled down there. My sister and her husband, John, lived there. My mother was interviewed. She gave her interview in Punjabi. I was interviewed, my sister, my daughter, and my brother-in-law, John. And that interview was then put on YouTube. Now, when my mother discovered that, she was quite upset because she thought, oh, people are now going to want to say things to me, you know, about my background, my religion, and so forth. I always identified as a Sikh. I practiced Sikhism. You know, she was a God-respecting person, felt that she'd been blessed with life to have children, have a good life in this country. And so that she, you know, the gods had answered her prayer. But that was put on on YouTube. And um, sometime later, our daughter said to us, you know, um, Dad, that video's gone viral. Hundreds of thousands of people are watching it. Obviously, substantially in, in India and Pakistan and the Indian diaspora, but not exclusively. And overwhelmingly, the comments were very powerful, very supportive. But there's a small percentage that still want to fight the old battles. My mom was worried about that. But about one year later, in 2019, I started to get voice messages at my law office and also some emails. And obviously, people had searched me on the web because I have a law office and website, um, and even on social media. And a handful of the posts on YouTube particularly were that we are members of your family. There's a surviving member of your family. Now, First of all, I couldn't understand a lot of these voice messages. There weren't that many. They weren't that many, but whatever they were, because they were in Urdu. Some of the, uh, the emails were in poorly written English, but also you just don't know what to expect. Is somebody playing mischief? Are they touts? Are they looking for immigration? Are they looking for money? So we just kind of held back. Um, but one day I got a, a telephone call from a fellow in Toronto. And he said, you know, Mr. Sandhu, you don't know me, but I'm from Pakistan. I'm from a place called Chichawatani in Punjab province. And I know this family. And they say that there's a surviving younger sister of your mom. And I said to him, well, how do I know this is true? I've got some messages. People could be dishonest. They could be searching for some, some advantage. He said, that's a valid concern. So what do we do? I said, well, how about, I don't want to speak to them directly. How about they send you a photograph of this woman and you send it to me? Well, he sent me the photograph and immediately I looked at it and said, that's my mother's sister. There's such a strong resemblance. Incredible. Shared it with my family. They felt the same. So then we began to uh, connect with this family And so everything happens in the month of August. August of 2018, my mother's interview. August of 2019, we connect with this family. And then we arranged to travel down to Vancouver. And we did a a video hookup with my mom and her sister. It was very emotional. And this younger sister then, of course, from her side, was able to subsequently fill other pieces of the puzzle for us. But what she said to my mom is she said, she said, you are also my sister, my older sister. I revere you. You are also like my mother. And she said, our mother survived. 
And she said, I was a very young girl. I was only three when the partition happened. But my mother used to hold me on her lap and she would weep, tell me the story and the tears would fall on to me. And I've heard the full story. And she said, my mother used to say that after having three sons, I finally had a daughter. You, you were the eldest daughter. And my mother said the rose of her life, she lost the rose of her life and the flower petals scattered. So they then for the next year continued to speak by telephone. And they put a lot of pieces together, uh, shared a lot. My Masi, which is what we say in Punjabi from the maternal side, my mother's sister, uh, is a widow. She's poor. She has four daughters, which in that culture, a very patriarchal culture, um, I understand what the implications of that are for her. And basically what we came to learn is, and from what my mother told in her interview as well, so in their village, their home was attacked. Uh, some members were killed right in the village, including the eldest son. The family literally had to flee, even with their money bag on the wall. They fled without anything. And in the fleeing, my mom was separated from her family. There were six children, three sons, three daughters. Eldest son was killed in the village. Son number three died en route from hunger or poisoning because wells were poisoned or illness. My mom survived, but they never knew that. Daughter number, the fifth child, who was five years old at the time, also died en route in the migration, and the three-year-old survived. So child number two, brother of my mom, my mom, as we now know, and the youngest, the three-year-old. So three out of six survived. So there was just my, my maternal grandmother and uh, the son and the daughter, and they struggled through poverty to make a new life. No assets really in Pakistan. It's been a real struggle. So basically, my mom and her sister spoke for a year. That then got covered by a newspaper in India and Pakistan. And then my subsequently, my Masi, my aunt, was also interviewed. And her interview has been seen, I think, uh, on YouTube 1.5 million times. My mom's interview is on a YouTube website called Exploring the History of Punjab. And my aunt's interview is on what's called Desi Infotainer. So then, however, and I mentioned the thing about the sequence of August. So August 2018 is, is my mom's interview. August 2019, we get these phone calls and make this connection. And we verified it. The things fit. No question that this is a legitimate connection. Uh, and then in August of 2020, my mom passed away. And ironically, she passed away on August 15, 2020, India's Independence Day. My mom never returned to India after having departed there. She had no family, obviously no happy memories, and she felt that there was nothing there for her. I mean, I, I understand that. Over the years, she would always talk about things, you know, share uh, stories with people, what's going on in music, culture, politics, dress, all of this, people's villages, marriages. And she was very socially engaged that way, but she obviously had no desire to ever go back there. Uh, she passed away, um, but I uh, continued to, and my family continued to speak with my aunt and her family. And I have also assisted her financially to help her. Of her four daughters, one is widowed, two are in very bad marriages, have fled their marriages, and the one is very stable. Uh, her husband and her is who we stayed with when we visited Pakistan. My Masi came there. But basically, for us, it came down to, do we let it go or what do we do? 
And not only was it the right thing to do, but also I didn't want to live and neither did my family with any regrets. I mean, even prior to my mom's death, there was a lot of postings on social media and on YouTube, people saying, whoever watched the video, you know, these two sisters need to meet. They need to embrace. And Sandhu, what's your problem? You need to get them together. Your mom should come to Pakistan. Well, my mom said, I'm not going to Pakistan. My health is frail. I don't know anything about the country. But we felt, okay, we could bring my aunt over. So I started to prepare documents to submit to the Canadian High Commission for a visa. But then the pandemic came and everything shut down. Then my mom passed away in August of 2020. So anyways, we made the decision that we were going to go see my aunt and as it expanded, there were seven of us. Not easy to arrange. And, but we made those arrangements and we departed in late November 2022. We were there for the month of December. We spent eight days at the house of my, now my cousin, so my aunt's daughter and her son-in-law in Chichawatani, which is in sort of southern Punjab province of Pakistan. Eight days with them, and um, we did a variety of things. Of course, we, we, we laughed, we wept, we shared love, we shared stories. We visited my, my aunt's village. All her surrounding neighbors came out wearing their finest clothing. They brought fruits, flowers, and gifts. And we also visited the grave site of my maternal grandmother, paid our respects um, to honor her, and that was a very emotional experience. People knew the story. A lot of people did. They were very gracious and kind. It resonated with them. I would think it's fair to say that there isn't, well, for the most part, Punjabis all over in India, in East Punjab, in West Punjab, in Pakistan, in the diaspora. Punjabis know the story of partition. Many, many, many millions were affected, and it continues to impact Punjabis and, and the politics to this day. So people were very kind and gracious. And thereafter, we embarked on a, a tour of, of Punjab province in Pakistan, which is perhaps not understood in the West, but very, very rich in historical and ancient sites. Um, so it was an incredible experience. I never felt any affiliation with Pakistan, so life is full of surprises. But after 75 years, we traveled there, connected with this family. And, um, it, and for me, it's part of completing the circle of our life, of our family story. The old saying goes, you know, to know your roots, the deeper the roots, the stronger the tree. And there was always a longing, I think. There was a gap there to want to know what is the family story, what is my mother's story. And her story is not so unique because so many were affected. Many, many have lived in silence. The, the violence, the cruelty was at a mass level, very depraved. Women were particularly subjected to violence. And um, so it's about keeping it alive and that generation is passing away. And I do know that there, there's a real longing for many, many survivors to return to their ancestral places, even though it be in the other country to have their ashes spread, to be buried. But the border is very hardened. There's enmity between India and Pakistan. Three wars. Neither country can win the war. They're nuclear powers. They expend a tremendous amount of energy, uh, economic resources on their militaries instead of the needs of their people. But for me, as a Canadian, born in Canada, will likely die in Canada. When I look at 
from afar. I see Punjab in Pakistan and Punjab in India as two children of the same mother. And for me, I discerned very little difference in the culture. You know, Punjabis have their own history, their literature, their poetry, their saints, their history. They dress the same. They have the same cuisine. They have the same personalities. The only thing that divides them is this border and maybe religion. But, you know, there's Hindus and Sikhs in Pakistan, and there's a very large Muslim population in India, including in Punjab. So it's really sad that this enmity exists. But I just felt that people are people. Um, I've had been treated the same in, in India's Punjab and in Pakistan's Punjab. But as I say, it was an interesting and very emotional, powerful journey that we're still trying to process emotionally. It's a, I mean, I've traveled a lot as of you, but this was different. It wasn't just travel. It was a journey of discovery uh, and putting the pieces together of my family's story and um, sharing that with my children so they know their, their story. Our son couldn't go because he couldn't get time off work. But our, of the seven that went, it was myself, my wife, my daughter, my sister, my brother-in-law, John, and then another couple that my mother had introduced and got married. They lived in Williams Lake and they now live in the lower mainland and they were very, very close to my mom. And they said, we also want to go. So there were seven of us that traveled um, a remarkable journey. It's such a remarkable story, you know, over 75 years in the making. And in one sense, this is a story inside of India and Pakistan from the era of partition, but it's also a, a very much a BC story as well, with so much of a diaspora here in the sense that, um, you know, even my own uh, parents' families uh, come from Pakistan. Going over to India, my father was a uh, four years old when uh, the partition was happening. My mother was born after partition, but the family had come over from, from there. And that, of course, those disruptions, loss of land, economy, that you know, led to the type of diaspora that we have here in, in BC, um, those stories oftentimes were held back. And it's a remarkable um, story. And I, I remember running into your mother a, a few times at the Sandman Inn and other places where she, where she often walked uh, to work, but I was a little bit younger, so I didn't know her as as well. I know that she was also a big fan of the BC Lions and professional wrestling and all of these things. I'm wondering if you could sort of, you know, the, this this story that lived inside of her, she, you know, had this life in, in Canada raising you and your sister and coming to terms with all of the complexity of life, but she very much embraced this place of being there. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about your your mother. Yeah, you know, people uh, ask my sister and I, who's our who's your hero? And we say our mother, because my mother was a remarkable woman. I mean, obviously that generation suffered a lot of trauma and internalized it. But my mom was very gregarious, very outgoing woman. You know, we used to joke, mom, you must have a bit of Irish in you because you like to tell stories, you like to laugh, um, you even have a little bit of Blarney in you. But she she loved ice hockey. She loved the BC Lions. She went to Camelot Blazers games when she lived here for about an eight-year period, helping us with our kids, picking them up from school. And she could be heard swearing at wrestling villains on TV. And every time, you know, I'd visit with her, she'd, she'd basically tell me what was going on in politics and so forth <laughs> in her own direct way because she watched the news, right? 
And she'd tell me, oh, these lawyers, what's wrong with the law? And of course, I'm a lawyer and a judge. And I try to explain to her, you know, the system is different than maybe you understand, mom. Um, and she was, I say, maybe forced upon her by circumstance, but because of my father's disability. But I say that she was a feminist without knowing the meaning of the word. She was very fierce. She was determined that, you know, she was independent, that she support her children. Nobody's going to tell her how to raise her kids. So, for example, when a time came for my sister to graduate from high school, there were some persons in the Punjabi community who would say, are you sure you want to send your daughter to university? You know, they go to the implication being, as you might understand, is that they go to university and they, they become liberal minded and they develop all these bad habits. But my mom always said, no, um, I never had an education. I want my children to have an education. My son and my daughter are equal, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to support them. And, you know, most of the Punjabi community, which at one time was quite large in Williams Lake, used to refer to as auntie, an honorific. And my mom really, and she was a very hardworking person. Like she'd get out in the garden. She could shovel snow when it was 30, 40 below. She was tough. She could hammer nails. So she just embraced life. She had a lot of friends. Obviously, you know, she had no family and we really had no direct, a very little direct family in Williams Lake, but she had created a community of friends in the Punjabi community and the wider community as well. So I think she was a remarkable person. It took a lot as I say, I mean, in very advanced years of her life, well into her 80s, um, for us to really pry the story out of her and tell her story. It took a lot of courage, but I'm glad she told her story. The world knows it. It's gone viral. It completed the circle for us. And, um, you know, she used to say, fate brought me to Canada for a better life. She was very grateful. After she did the interview, she said, you know, some people are going to say, oh, you know, your mom is a Muslim, you're not Sikhs. We just said to her, it doesn't matter, mom. The truth is the truth. Uh, people can say whatever they want. We are who we are. We stand strong. You've told your story. You, you know, basically you practice Sikhism. You claim to be a Sikh. You, you embrace it. And that's your way. And that's your business. Nobody else's. But, you know, some people still want to argue things about caste. That's recently been a story. And certainly in Washington state and British Columbia and Canada, that there's a lot of caste discrimination. We have that in the, in the South Asian community. Sikhs are not supposed to believe in caste, but it, it is practiced um, social discrimination. But, you know, for us growing up here, I'm, we consider ourselves fairly secular. And like I said, people are people. And so I embrace the full history of my family's story. I'm proud of it. It is what it is. And um, it's important to tell the story because, you know, the old cliche, if you don't learn the lessons of history, people are doomed to repeat it. There are concerns. I mean, we see this in the world with mass violence, but we also see in India now the rise of authoritarianism, the persecution of minorities, particularly Muslims, but other minorities, Sikhs, Christians, so forth. Yeah, it's interesting that you you mentioned uh, running into Pakistani Punjabis, the sharing of the language and culture. I've I've had a, a Pakistani Punjabi cab driver in New Orleans, and when I spoke to him in Punjabi, he refused to let me pay. I've run into Pakistani peacekeepers in Kosovo who also um, treated me so well. And so there is, uh, you know, hopefully uh, an opportunity for um, others to to visit there. These arbitrary kinds of uh, what borders can can do, and it's great to see um, here in in town that there's. Uh, Punjabi language literature prize that tries to uh, look beyond those those borders as well. Wondering in terms of your you know you're you're going along in life and then all of a sudden 
the story comes upon you. And clearly it was so meaningful for um, your mother to be able to converse with her sister virtually uh, and you to be able to, to meet her in person. But I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to, you know, how did it change you? Because it's it sort of, you know, this is a 75-year story in the making, and so much of it involves a kind of an absence of not knowing. And then when this story comes upon you, um, changes you, you know, in a real way. Yeah. Um, I think there was always a longing to find out the truth, right? Um, even to find my grandmother, right? To pay her respect. It really is about completing the story of who we are and our roots, and also about honoring my my mom, my aunt, and my grandmother. You know, there was a lot of trauma, a lot of suffering, a lot. Certainly, in the Pakistan side, you know, they really had it hard. They really were poor, dirt poor. Even now, my Masi is quite poor, and I'm doing what I can to help her and her daughters. And one of her daughters lives with her because she had to flee her home and she has three young children. So I'm determined to help educate those kids. How it changed me is it just, it's, I know now, you know, and I pass this on to my, my daughter and my son, my sister knows. We just feel a little bit more at peace that we've done this for my mom as well. You know, people, um, there was a sort of some segment on YouTube and, and generally that, oh, well, these are Westerners. They're more individualistic. They don't care. They won't come to Pakistan. But we did. But I didn't do it to prove them wrong. I did it for ourselves. And it's the most enriching, most powerful emotional experience I've had in my life. You know, there's a piece that I that I omitted to mention. Like my, my mom says in her interview that, when they had fled their home, she was separated from her family. And there were always these certain centers had refugee camps and she was on her way to a refugee camp and it was attacked. And when it was attacked, she ran and my father grabbed her arm and said, run. Now, what we understand is that, you know, my father brought her to his village, to his home, but eventually the elder said, you can't, you can't keep this young girl at your home. It's not right. So what are you going to do now? In my research subsequently, in my readings, you know, aside from mass violence, of course, whenever these conflicts happen, there's tremendous uh, abuse of women. And even women who ended up married on the other side, the two governments, India and Pakistan, under the, I would say, emphasis on patriarchy, forcibly would repatriate women, even women that had been married and had children. Like I remember first time I went to India in 1981 in my father's village, I met a fellow who knew my father and I met his two sons and they said, you know, we were young boys. We had just been born and our mom was forcibly taken by the police and the military and returned to Pakistan. We never heard of her again. We don't know what happened to her. That happened a lot. Also, so there was this concept of preserving your honor. Women then, but if they were repatriated, were not marriageable. Some were sold into prostitution and some were victims of honor killing. So I don't question what happened. Basically, I just simply say my father gave my mom a good life. But for even the partition, I wouldn't exist, neither would my sister and neither would my children. And we wouldn't have this great life and tremendous opportunity that we've had in Canada. And there's no question, whatever my mom's hardships, the trauma she bore, 
having a disabled husband at home, uneducated woman, a Punjabi woman, the discrimination she put up with in this society, the you know manual labor work that she had, her life was far, far, far superior to that that she would have had in Pakistan or in India compared to her sister or her mother. And uh, my understanding is her mother passed away likely around 1973 or 74 in there. So, you know, you can't change history and you can't question. It just is. But I, for me, it's even hard. And I'm a, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> I'm good with words. But this is hard for me to encapsulate in words. It's just, you know, there's an element of pain. There's the element of joy. You know, I read, for example, poetry. I read the poetry of Amita Pritam, and she has this famous poem to Waris Shah about the daughters of Punjab. And so I feel a deeper connection to my Punjabi roots, but I'm a citizen of the world, right? I'm a Canadian. There's so much more. We have many identities, not just one. People sometimes try to pigeonhole us as a Punjabi or whatever, but I believe I have many identities, um, and that's the beauty of being able to be born here and raised here. But we struggle with that sometimes, too. You know, like, first time I ever went to India in 1981, I went to my family, my father's ancestral village. I took my shoes off and waded into the rice field bare feet and kind of almost called my forebearers and nobody answered, right? And I, I realized that I didn't belong there, that, that it was not a part of me anymore, that what part of me was British Columbia, it was Canada, even, you know, Williams Lake, I mean, I'm sure you can identify this. It's hard to describe with somebody when the snow falls, you know, the beauty of that and walking to school in the snow and when spring comes or walking in the woods and the smell of fir trees. These are part of my childhood memories, right? Um, despite, you know, Williams Lake is not a perfect place, no places. In many ways, it's a notoriously redneck town. But it gave my family a good foundation. I got a good education. We were able to build a life starting there. So I'm really grateful for that. You know, even there are times when I still get emotional and shed a tear uh, about this whole experience. But I'm just grateful that this remarkable, almost miracle happened that my mom agreed to tell her story. We weren't happy when Mr. Dr. Daubry put it on YouTube. But he was right. He did a tremendous thing. He turned out to be a hero because... Somebody saw it in India, apparently, as we gather, phone somebody else. And, you know, you can always pigeonhole people in Punjabi with just a few questions. Usually it's around the village. What's the name of the village? And so somebody then phoned somebody in Pakistan, said, you're from that village. They phoned somebody else and then phoned my, my aunt's family and her son-in-law and her daughter. And they then watched the video and then invited my aunt and the rest is history. Then they started to do the search. They even hired somebody to do a social media search for me to try to contact me. And um, here we are. So after 72 years, my mom did the, um, so in, in, yeah, 2018, she did the interview. In 2019, after 72 years, this connection was made. And then three years later, 75 years after partition, in late 2022, we traveled to Pakistan. I was interviewed there. It's on Desi Infotainer. They asked that I do it in Punjabi, which is not my first language. Um, there are some limitations for me, but I did it. I think about 300,000 people appear to have watched it or, or certainly clicked on. And then my my daughter and my sister did an interview. Their interviews are also on Desi Infotainer, and they're in English about our experience. Um, it's about sharing it. And then you see that there are other people are under 
undergoing the same journey, trying to discover going to their ancestral places. I mean, I've seen documentaries where people will say, you know, if you go to that place, can you at least see if my old home is standing and maybe bring a brick back? right? Even something tangible. Like I have nothing physical, not even a photograph of either of my grandparents. But when I went to uh, my Masi's village, I said to her, Masi, do you have anything of my grandmother? And she said, no, there's nothing left, but there is one thing, a brass sort of pot to pour tea or water from that she gave me when I got married. And I said, well, that's good enough for me. Do you, can I have it? And she said, I'd be happy to give it to you. So I now have one physical, tangible memento, some connection to my, my maternal grandmother. Bill, thank you. It's been so wonderful to hear that story again uh, from your own words. It's such a powerful, moving story. And I'm wondering if there's anything you'd, you'd like to add. No, just thank you for you know being interested in this. I'm hoping that these, these stories will be documented and preserved for history because that generation is passing on. There's a whole history there that certainly in the subcontinent and in the diaspora people are aware of, but the rest of the world really doesn't know. You know, we, we hear about what's happened in Europe. We hear about the Holocaust. We hear about the Yugoslav conflict. We even hear about Rwanda from time to time. I mean, but these are things that need to be known because they're human stories. And we know how fragile societies are. As I said, that people that lived together for millennia were divided by religion. You know, there's a saying, I'm on the list of counsel of the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and there's a saying we have there that the very people who say they'll protect you are the ones that then say, here's the shovel and dig your own grave. And my mother in her interview said there in her own village, there were people who were saving them Muslims, but there were also people who were attacking them. And these stories are there, the complexity of it. And it happens on both sides. Muslims saved Hindus and Sikhs. Others, Muslims murdered Hindus and Sikhs. And Hindus and Sikhs murdered Muslims and others were saving them. There are tremendous stories of courage, but the reality is, you know, entire uh, region, Punjab was fractured, ripped apart, and the suffering was tremendous. And to this day, that border is hardened in two countries Two states are at enmity and at risk of war, but the victims need to be known. Their stories need to be known. And for me, it's just about being complete, putting all the pieces of the puzzle, drawing the circle of my life so that I know whatever future holds for me, however long I may be on this earth, I know who I am. I know my family's story. I also, I think, have the advantage of looking from afar. I'm not Pakistani. I'm not Indian. I'm Canadian, right? That's who we are. That's our nationality. But that story, that connection, as it is for all persons of their historical roots, wherever it may be, we have those connections. We cherish the richness of uh, Indian civilization, the subcontinent, Punjabi, you know, our poets, our philosophers, our saints. It's very few places in the world that are as rich in its philosophy and religious and spiritualism and the arts and music and literature. And um, so... As much as I try to, I thought 1981, it wasn't a part of me, keeps pulling me back from time to time and the emotional tugs are there. But I'm just happy that I was able to share it with my children. I'm happy to share the story. There are still people who will post things online and want to fight those battles and the prejudices. But I just simply say, we have to stand for human rights and we have to stand for human dignity. And when I was in Pakistan, to me, 
They're just people. They're humans, not just like us. Common humanity have the same hopes, dreams, fears. And I discern very little difference in Punjabis there and Punjabis in India or diaspora. They are Punjabis. And I hope that a younger generation can move it in a more positive direction to share their culture or even bring some degree of unity and more connections. And often it starts with the arts, but there's always the business angle. If there's trading, then it builds links. I was told, I raised that issue and somebody said, oh yeah, but we smuggle stuff across the border anyways, back and forth from India, no matter how much the military tries that. But if they could build those links, that would be marvelous. Because I've often felt, as you said, when I've traveled around the world, I met Pakistanis, they're just friendly. I mean, we have this Punjabi language and culture. There's more similarities there than I would have with somebody from Kerala or Tamil Nadu or Bengal. I mean, wonderful people in, in those states and in India as well. But what I'm saying is we have more in common with Pakistan's Punjab, those tens of millions of people with origins in India's Punjab than we do elsewhere. It's, it's sad that there's that hardened border, but we try and we try to build links to try to build bridges for a better future for people there and elsewhere and to tell the story so they're not repeated because there are, there are terrible signs, certainly in India, about what could be coming. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our episode with Bill Sundu. Head to the show notes below to learn more about resources mentioned in the show. You can follow us on social media at SFU underscore V-O-C-E to keep up to date on our new podcast releases. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar. Thank you.